Thank you for listening to the audio podcast of the King's Crossing Church of Christ. To learn more or subscribe, please visit our website at kingscrossingcoc.com. So uh, Father's Day, I don't know about you, when I think about dads, it's hard to think about dad apart from dad jokes. You know, that's something that we all bless our families with. I'm looking forward to my son's increasing ability to understand what we talk about, mostly so I can make him uncomfortable with bad jokes. You know, there's a, there's a lot of value in that. That's one of my favorite memes is there's all kinds of ways people have inserted captions on this, but you can just imagine whatever that dad just said, he is eating it up and his family is all groaning. I think when I think of good fatherhood, that's one of the images that pops in my head. But uh, we, we are very grateful for the times that we needed to be a kid, and Dad chose to be a kid with us and be playful. We're thankful for the times that our fathers were the friend that we needed, and oftentimes they were the parent that we were needing. Uh, dads really are irreplaceable in the lives of our families, and we are grateful for dads. And if you didn't already do it on the way in, before you go, if you're here and your father is here today, we have a little photo booth set up there near the entrance. would encourage you to, to snap a picture and uh, just savor the moments that you get to have with each other. So I want to talk a little bit about the trouble with waiting. I'm experiencing more and more in life, especially when you're dealing with someone who's waiting for a call that's an important phone call, maybe about health or some significant family situation, um, a lot of times uncertainty is even harder than good news or bad news, isn't it? You know, it's one thing to get good news, that's a blessing, and sometimes you get bad news, but when you know what the bad news is, then you can start formulating your plan. You can formulate your strategy. You can start working on processing what it is you're up against. Bad news you can at least deal with. But there's nothing quite like uncertainty where you just have to live there in the middle, not sure what to do. And that's one of the struggles with waiting is that when we're waiting, even if it's something we've been given a promise about, that this person says they're going to come through for me or God himself has promised he's going to come through for us, Waiting for the Lord sometimes moves us to that place of uncertainty where we begin to ask, is God actually going to come through? Uh, there's a famous play from, oh goodness, not quite a century ago, but many years ago from Samuel Beckett called Waiting for Godot. And it's theater of the absurd. It's completely just bonkers, slapstick, off the wall, very bizarre story about these two characters who are waiting for a guy named Godot. And part of the punchline of the whole thing is Godot is probably never coming, but they just keep waiting and wondering and waiting and wondering. And it's hard to know what to do with yourself when you're waiting on someone if you're not exactly sure whether they're going to show up. So we've been working now through the story of Abraham, and last week we talked about the passage where uh, Lot has moved with his family to the, the lush valley area that's close to Sodom and Gomorrah. There was the battle between all the different kings fighting over territories, and Abram's family gets kind of sucked into that battle, even though they want nothing to do with it, because Lot was living in Sodom, and therefore Lot and his family was, was captured. And so we talked about that situation Immediately following that, Abram's gotten God's promises and he's kind of waiting on God to fulfill those promises, but then God shows up again and surprises him. In Genesis chapter 15, in verse 1, it says, After this, 
the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, what can you give me since I remain childless and the one who will inherit my estate is Eliezer of Damascus? And Abram said, You have given me no children, so a servant in my household will be my heir. So um, one of the things that's to me difficult about Scripture, and especially encounters like this, is you can really only speculate about the tone of a person's voice, right? When you read what Abraham says in response, exactly what tone was he using? What was his attitude or his mood? Maybe this is just always a gentle person with great optimism, but I have to tell you that as I look at this situation, I feel that there must be some level of frustration in the things that Abraham is saying. I think he's waiting on God's promises, and God's told him, you're going to have a great future. You're going to have all these descendants, and I'm going to give you all this territory. But so far, nothing's happened. I mean, so far, he's, he's taken God at his word. He left his home and his family. They all, they all traveled together and relocated, but he's still waiting on all this stuff to start happening. And so what you start doing, just like any of us, you begin to ask those questions. Um, is, is God ever going to do this? Could it be the case maybe that I, maybe I wasn't really understanding the promise? Like he gave a promise, I thought, but maybe it wasn't a promise or maybe uh, I was unclear on some point of it. Is there something else maybe I was supposed to do that I haven't done? You know, you know, he had to have all those kinds of questions. But looking at the two specific questions that he asks God, I find them very interesting. The first question is, what can you give me? And I don't know how you read that. What can you give me? What can you give me? What can you give me? I don't know how you put the tone on that question, but it's a significant question because God has shown up and God just out of the blue says to Abraham, oh, Abraham, I am, I'll be your, your strong shield and I'll be your very great reward. And he says, okay, well, if you're my reward, what exactly am I going to do with a reward when I got no heir to inherit this reward? So what exactly can you give me? Kind of a bold question to ask God, isn't it? It's a bold question to ask God. One of the things I love about his story, Abraham's story, is that we're reminded that faith is not just this glazed over, happy, victory to victory, everything's always easy and clear, but faith is something that involves a lot of wrestling and back and forth where I'm struggling to stay connected to God, and sometimes it doesn't feel easy to do that. But Abram continues to reach out to him and to connect with him, but he's also raising his complaint. How are you going to, you know, what are you going to give me if I don't have an heir? And right now, one of my household servants, Eliezer, great servant, great guy, but he's the only thing I've got. So what's all, all these blessings you say you're going to give me? Who's going to get them? Where are they going to go? God responds and says, no, it's actually going to be what I said. It's going to be someone from your own flesh and blood. This is where he takes Abram outside and has him look up at the stars and says, can you count the stars? If you could count the stars, you'd be able to count your descendants. So numerous they're going to be. And then God brings up again and says, by the way, I brought you into this land so that you're going to take it into your possession. Then Abram asks the second question how can I know? <laughs> it's another interesting question to ask God. Okay, what can you give me? Oh, so that's what you're going to give me. How do I know you're going to give it to me? He's asking for some sort of a guarantee. That's a question born of uncertainty, isn't it? You haven't even given me a son yet. 
I'm old. How can I know the rest of this stuff is going to happen? I mean, you still got to make good on the first part in order to make good on the second part. I've got to have an heir so that you can give them all this land. So how do I know this is going to happen? So I want to read this passage from Genesis 15, beginning in verse 9. This is a, a fascinating portion of Scripture. So the Lord said to him, in Genesis 15 and verse 9, the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Abram brought all these to him, cut them in two, and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. The birds of prey came down on the carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a thick and dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, Know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions." You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and the darkness had fallen, a smoking firepot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. It actually literally says he cut a covenant. So think about slicing those animals. When they made that covenant, there was cutting it involved. So the Lord cut a covenant with Abram and said, To your descendants I give this land from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, this tradition, this action of having the animals cut in half, passing between the middle of them, this to us sounds pretty strange because it's not a typical thing that we would do. Uh, it's not a normal kind of thing for us to do in making an agreement with someone. But in fact, there really is a lot of precedent for this, both in ancient Greek culture as well as in ancient Hittite culture. And so in the place where Abram was living this practice was not necessarily a strange practice, but what was highly unusual was being able to enter into a covenant in this way with God himself. Now, you can speculate a lot on the symbols of the torch and the fire pot and, and the fire of God's presence, the light of God. There's a lot of interesting imagery there because God doesn't show up in the form of a person, but he is absolutely present. But what's incredible is Normally, if you and I were going to enter into a covenant in the ancient world that was that serious, we might slice those animals in half. And again, you don't just do this every week. This is a pretty major deal. But you would get the pieces in half, but then what we would do is we would walk through those pieces together. And as we walk through those pieces together, the understood meaning of that is, if I ever back out on this covenant, may the same thing happen to me that happened to these animals. You're saying, I'm, I mean this covenant to the death. But it was always the two agreeing parties who walked through together. But do you see what's happening here? The only one who passes through is God himself. And Abraham just has to stand there on the side. It's really profound. Why in the world? What God is doing here, God is making himself accountable to human beings. And I ask, how in the world is Abram ever going to hold God accountable to anything? Because let's face it, God can make you a promise, but if he doesn't want to keep it, all he's got to do is wait on you to die or kill you, right? God doesn't owe you anything. 
God doesn't have to keep any promises to you. But God doesn't even invite Abram to walk through the middle. God goes through the middle on his own, saying, indicating to Abram, may this happen to me. I, the Lord, may this happen to me if I ever go back on these things that I've promised you. It's fascinating. Why would God ever lower himself to being so vulnerable to human beings? Why would he ever come down as Jesus and become one of us and go through the things he went through for our good. It says so much about the character of the God we serve. When it comes to our salvation, of course, we we accept it, we respond to it, we try to live in gratitude for it, but all I can do for my salvation is really just to accept what Jesus is doing on my behalf. He walks through that path alone. I just have to stand there and be grateful because there's nothing I have to offer him in return. So we serve a God who makes himself vulnerable, even accountable to us in the things he says he's going to do for us. As I read through this passage and this story, I think what happens is that there are several questions that show up that are questions we all might wrestle with from time to time, but uh, not at all times. But I, I think kind of indirectly, he speaks to several things that we've all wondered about over the years. One question you might struggle with sometimes is the question of how God works. Why does God work so slowly? You ever feel that way? It's what Abram was struggling with. I mean, you made me all these promises. I was already plenty old when you promised it to me, and now I'm still waiting on it. Like, when are you ever going to make good on this? I've only got so many years. I've only got so much health. Why does God work so slowly? Now, 2 Peter 3.9 would tell us that when we tend to want to look at God's actions as being slow, he says rather instead we should understand God's acts as patient. 2 Peter 3.9 says that God is not slow in keeping his promises the way that we understand slowness, but that he is patient with us because he doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance Why does Jesus wait so long to come back? Why does God give us such a long length of time to work through the problems in our lives? God is supremely patient with us. So we look at his actions, we see slowness. God is simply waiting for the right time. It's often the case that we kind of want to jump ahead and get things done faster. And in our, in our daily lives, isn't it a struggle? If you've got some things you do at your job or in your household or whatever it is, and you're trying to get someone to help you with it, and they're not doing it right or they're not doing it fast enough, isn't it just the case? You say, just, you know, just get out of the way and let me get this done. God isn't that way, though. God always insists on inviting us along. You know, what, what's our problem? If, if that's the way you deal with your household or your workplace, if you've got lots of things you do and every time someone starts to come along, you don't make room to teach them how to cut their teeth and grow into your shoes, suddenly you find out there's no one to hand it off to. There's no one to pick up the slack and continue. But that's not the way that God leads us. Consider that some of the greatest work God is doing is not happening in the span of a single lifetime. Look at Jesus in his coming to this world that happened, promised to Abraham, occurring centuries later. God refuses to move unilaterally and just push us out of the way to get his work done. But instead, God chose to use thousands of people over the centuries 
to accomplish something so much bigger than any of us could have done or anyone could have done in just a single generation. Even now, we have to look at our lives and understand that as part of a bigger picture in my own life, just like Abraham got a mere glimpse of what his descendants would experience, it may be that in our lifetime, I'm only getting a glimpse of some of the big things God is preparing to do. And just because I don't see them in this body with these eyes doesn't mean that God won't come through and fulfill his promises. But God chooses to move slowly by our standards because he wants to include us in what it is that he's doing. He wants to see us reach our full potential in his love, and he doesn't want just to leave us all behind. God appears to work slowly to us, but what he's trying to do is to work with us. A second question that pops up in my mind as I study through this text is the question of locations. You know, one of the things that I think we all talked about when COVID started hitting was, well, all of a sudden, what does it mean for the, for the churches to be closed down or a church to be like destroyed somewhere? And everyone always responds, no, the church is the people, right? It's not the building, it's the people. But so often in scripture, there is great importance placed on the physical location, you know, what difference does it make for God to give Abram this specific land, this specific territory? I would say if you've ever had the opportunity to travel over to the Holy Lands and to tour some of these locations where the actual events occurred, it does permanently change the way you read those scriptures. So if you've been blessed to stand there in the valley where David faced Goliath, if you've been able to go there to the Temple Mount and walk on some of the actual stones there from the temple that, that Jesus would have been walking around on, feasibly stepping in the same place that he stepped with his foot, to see the layout of the land around Galilee and some of those cities and little towns and judge, you know, how far could I throw a rock and how far was this, you know, synagogue from Peter's household? Like there's all these different things that you can get spatially from walking around there. But the real significance of this land was that this was the place where the life of Jesus eventually was going to unfold. God knew in advance this was going to be a special place because it's where God would work so mightily in the lives of people. But now I think we have to invite ourselves to look at the spaces we occupy in the same light. You know, God has promised he's going to work through us and he's going to do it patiently. Sometimes that feels slowly to us. But in the family that you've been given, in the church where you worship, in the community where you live, God is doing things. God has been doing things. God has future things prepared for us. And it's worth pausing sometimes to look at your kitchen table, the place where you eat your meals with your family, the bedrooms where you sleep, the living room where you hang out, the space here where we worship together all of these things that we share and to remind ourselves, you know, these are the real spaces where we're going to witness God at work among us. And in our lives, this will carry eternal significance. Isn't it fascinating to think that just a little, I mean, even Corpus Christi water, we can run Corpus Christi water in here, and when a person is baptized into Christ, their soul is saved. Here in this place, in this location, God is at work, God is acting through us. Good time to ask, what's the significance of Camp Bandina? I think most campers and staff would tell you there's just something special about being there. And why is that? Because in that space, we've witnessed God work in the lives of so many and move the hearts of so many. 
So to the question of what's so valuable about a space or a place, let's just remind ourselves to be grateful for the spaces we actually live in that God has given to us because these are the places where God is going to do things, and we have to remain open to the movements and actions of God in our lives. A third question is probably a less comfortable question, but it's one that we all have to think about because Abram is looking at his years and saying, I couldn't possibly have that many to go. How do I die a good death? Now, the more popular way to phrase that question is to say, how do I make sure I'm living my best life? Now, my problem with that mindset is that usually, for me, tends to focus around If I'm living my best life, I get all the stuff I want. I get to do all the stuff I want. I get to be the person, everyone, you know, at least the way I want them to look at me. And so often with living my best life, we're kind of thinking in a self-centered fashion. But if you flip that question and say, you know, my time here is limited. Uh, Psalm 90 says that in numbering our days, we gain a heart of wisdom. When I begin to understand that I've only got so many days to live and so many opportunities to walk in this life with God and to show kindness to others. Those opportunities won't be here forever. I have to ask, what is it that I am going to die to and die for in my life so that it can be a good life? I don't know if you noticed this, but in the passage we look at, God talks to Abram about Abram's death, and he's not terrified at the prospect. God says, you're going you're gonna to die a good death. You're going to be gathered to your fathers. I was thinking about that phrase this week and how I know on a day like today, it's a happy celebration for many of us. For some of us, it's bittersweet because we're thinking of the father we wish we could send a card to and call on the phone. The thought of dying and being gathered to your fathers, being brought back together with the people who raised you and taught you your faith, who've gone on ahead of you and completed that race. God's able to speak to Abram and say, you know, you're going to die a good death because you've lived a life of faithfulness. We're called to be holy as God is holy. We're invited to try and become like God, not in the sense of grasping his power, but in the sense of imitating his character. And here in this text, God has humbled himself for our benefit He's made promises to care and provide when we could give nothing in return. You could say that God lives righteously and is our ultimate example of righteousness. And I think if you could define that term simply, what does it mean to be a righteous person? It means that you're living in a right way relative to the people around you, that the people you should be showing kindness and compassion to, you do that rightly. The people that you should challenge, you do that rightly. You always live in such a way that people would say your character is good and that you're a person of your word. Righteousness is a matter of living rightly in relation to others. God always lives rightly and acts rightly in relation to us. And in Abram's case, it becomes clear that the best way to be right in relation to God is to believe God. It says that Abram believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Faith itself, the act of trusting God, is considered a form of righteousness. If you pay attention to the Gospels and some of the people who have faith that Jesus gets especially excited about, 
It's usually the case that it's someone showing great openness to God doing new things in their life. And that's what that faith looks like. When you see a person who says, God's about to do something new in my life, I welcome the change, I welcome the challenge, whatever it is he wants, I welcome it. That's usually a faith that Jesus gets excited about. There's the centurion who's able to say, I don't even need you to come with me to heal this person. If you say it'll be done, I take you at your word. I'm open to this new thing I believe you can do in my life. Can you imagine the faith of those friends of the paralytic man who couldn't get him in the house, so they climbed up on the roof and started removing the roof to lower this guy down in the middle of the assembly so that Jesus would do something? I mean, what if Jesus didn't do something? What, what a big stepping out on their faith that was, trusting that he would come through. But they showed profound openness to Jesus doing something new. It's those occasions where Jesus will say, your faith has made you well, that we find the kind of faith we want to imitate. God says to Abram, even though it's not feasible or even possible by your power alone, I'm going to do something new and amazing in your life. And Abram says, God, whatever you would have me do, whatever you would do through me, I would welcome that. As you reflect on God in your life, don't treat God as if he's just a hypothesis about your future where you say, you know, I've done the calculations, I've read some stuff, I think there's probably a God, I'm gonna do these things to be obedient, and I've got this hypothesis that when I'm dead, there's probably a God, and I wanna make sure I'm on good terms with him. God's not just a hypothesis about our future. God is a loving voice around which we order our lives. He's a father to us. We see the things that he's promised us and we say, because I know you and I see your character and the ways you've been good and all the ways that you've been trustworthy, I'm going to order my life around your promises, counting on you eventually to show up and do exactly the things you said you would do. God is a father who truly can be trusted. Today, maybe there's something that's been weighing on you in your heart, and uh, maybe there's something you'd like us to be praying about. Maybe you would like to respond to the Lord this morning and be, be baptized and, and start your life over again with the help of the Holy Spirit and the support of uh, our, our congregation here. Um, if you have some sort of special need and maybe just something simple you would like to message to us without coming forward, we've got these QR codes on the screen. You can scan with uh, the camera on your phone, or you can do the same thing with the one that's found on the back of your bulletin. But every week we have some people that are just letting us know a few prayer requests or some people interested in membership, any of that stuff you're curious about, um, feel free to contact us by that form if that's an easier method for you. But either way, this is a time we set aside to respond to any needs that we have. So if you have a need and we can support you, we would invite you to come forward as together we stand and sing.